Bow your heads with me and let's pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. May we be reminded today, God, of the Son that you sent, Jesus, who died the most horrific death on the cross in our place. Lord, may we never forget that during this time of the year, and may we always be reminded, God, of that, of what you have done for us, God, your grace and your mercy and your love, and just how holy you truly are, God. I pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of that today and that, God, it would even pierce through the hardest of hearts, Lord, as we open up your word. And I pray, God, that you would help us to never forget that, God, each and every week of our lives, that we would be reminded and that we would be humbled. We pray this in your Son's precious name, through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. Amen. You may be seated. I was super excited to open up the gift that Christmas. I was about seven or eight years old, and the gift for that Christmas that I really, really, really wanted was a Nintendo Entertainment System. Now, just to clarify, this is not a Nintendo Switch, I think is what they're called today. Uh, This is a little gray box with little gray cartridges that you had to put in the freezer or you had to blow on to get them to work. This is the one that had the two buttons, not the 25,000 buttons. This was the one that was 2D, not 3D. It was interesting just the other day, uh, just a little side note, rabbit trail here. Uh, I got some of my college students to play on this uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. I have the retro version. And uh, they died on Super Contra in about 0.5 seconds, okay? That's how difficult it was. Their minds could not even imagine the 2D going on in their heads. Or the fact that they could jump around bullets either. That was amazing. But this Christmas, that is exactly what I wanted for Christmas. And I begged for it. I pleaded for it. I asked for it from my parents. And I remember as that Christmas went on, I was uh, opening up all these presents. And the first gift I got was clothes. And I don't know if you're like me, but I just don't really enjoy getting clothes. I hate to say that anybody who's ever given me clothes. But I, I opened up the present and I would try to be nice about it. Oh, thank you. And I'd sort of put it to the side. And then I opened up the next one, and it was another uh, a T-shirt. And <laughs> Thank you. Put it to the side. Opened up the next one, and it was a pair, a 20-pack pair of socks. And I <laughs> sort of put that to the side. And then the next one was underwear. <laughs> okay, thanks. And then finally, it was sort of like a scene off a Christmas story. Uh, tucked in the back of the Christmas tree, my parents brought out this big box that I just knew had to be the one. And so there I am, I'm ripping open this box, and I'm reaching into this box, and I'm feeling something squishy that sort of feels like clothes, and I'm telling myself it can't be clothes, right? It's too big to be clothes. And I pull out the first one, and it's a pair of jeans. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, thanks, all right, put that over to the side. And then I reach in again, and I begin to pull out another pair of jeans, And I'm thinking to myself, this is a very sick joke right now, okay? You've just ruined my Christmas. But finally, as I got through the mound of clothes that was in there, I look back, and it's like a light shone through the box, and I'm pulling out this box that I can see, and I can read on the outside that says Nintendo Entertainment System. 
So as I'm pulling it back, if you can just imagine with me just for a second, the excitement that came to Ralphie's face on a Christmas story as he saw his Red Ryder BDB gun, that was the same exact excitement that I had that day. I was overjoyed. I was super excited. I could not believe that I had it in my hands. Here it was, right? The virtual reality of the day, the Xbox, the PlayStation, this was it. And man, I just could not wait to open it up and to play it that day. You know, it's interesting, as I was reading through the scriptures this past week and as I was preparing for this lesson, I began to think that that's exactly how Mary had to feel. When she believed and she knew that the Savior of the world was in her womb, what an amazing, awesome gift that she had. And what did that do to her, as Clint talked about a couple of weeks ago? That humbled her, right, inside of a holy and righteous and mighty God. But then also, we know that she was considered blessed. That's what Will talked about last week, that she was considered blessed because of the fact that she believed and that she knew that this was the promised Messiah. And so it's amazing to be able to think through that and to be able to just see how Mary broke out into song because of this. And that's what we're going through uh, this series. We're going through the Magnificat of Mary. It's found in Luke chapter 1, if you'll open up your Bibles with me. Luke chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at pages, uh, it's on page 856 of your pew Bibles. Page 856, that's the black Bible that is there in front of you. If you do not have a Bible uh, at home and you need one, you're more than welcome to take that one home with you as we're trying to purify the church and penetrate the culture here at Perimeter Road. We're going to be focusing on verses uh, 49 through 51 of Luke uh, chapter 1, but I'm going to go ahead and read verses 46 through 55 just to sort of give us the context of what is going on here. So read silently with me, if you will, as I read aloud. It says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, uh, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, like I said, we're going to be focusing on verses 49 through 51 of this song of praise of Mary. Now, it's called the Magnificat because it says there, my soul magnifies and magnifies in the Latin Vulgate is Magnificat. So that's why it's called that. So this is a song of praise. And if you notice this, 
um, that she says at the very beginning, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then it breaks out into a bunch of fours of because, because, because. For he has looked on the humble estate. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And if you notice in verses 49 through 51, a word that is mentioned over and over and over again is the pronoun he. What does it say? For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. Uh, from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. And so what Mary is doing here is she is realizing where this blessing is coming from. She's realizing who has provided for her. She is reflecting on and going back to who God is. And so there's three attributes of God that are mentioned in this section of Scripture, and those are the three things that we're going to be focusing on today. But one of those attributes of God is holy. Another attribute of God that we see in this is uh, the strength or mighty, and then another one that we see is mercy. And so as we look back there in verse 49, it says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Now I'm going to talk more about the strength later on in verse 51, but she is recognizing here right off, right off the bat here in verse 49 of the mighty God that we serve of what he has done for her and all the ways that he has blessed her. And this is what humbled her. This is what caused her to have humility. But then she also goes on to say, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And what? And holy is his name. Now that word holy in the Greek is hagias. And it literally means set apart. It means different. It means sacred. Now think about that. Sometimes we have a negative connotation of different, don't we? Right? Look at that person over there. They're different. Right. But in this sense, we see that it's using to describe God, that he is holy, that he is set apart, that he is different. Now, in a sense, we are created in the image of God, but yet at the same time, we are different from God as well. And so there's numerous places within the scriptures where it mentions this phrase for God of holy. And actually, holy is mentioned more than any other time within the scriptures as an attribute of God. And ultimately, it encompasses all other attributes of God as well. He encompasses these attributes uh, perfectly together in God and in the Trinity. But Isaiah 6, 3, what does it say? And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Revelation 4.8, what does it say? And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Psalm 77, 13, what does it say? Your way, O God, is what? Holy. What God is great like our God. Now, one thing that we've got to understand when we talk about a holy God is that this is a God who is different from us in the fact that he absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, God hates sin. Now, when I say that for some of you in this room, you may be completely okay with that statement. And there's nothing wrong with what I just said. 
But the next statement that I'm about to say, you may have a problem with. And so bear with me because I have a problem with it as well. And I'm trying to figure it out in my mind as I go through this also. It's a statement that I made to my wife the other day, and she gave me a little bit of backlash on it. So I know, therefore, that I'm probably going to have some here as well. But not only does God hate sin, God also hates sinners. I said it. That's a rough statement, isn't it? And it's not completely true. It is true, but then there's more to it as well. But I always learned that God hates sin, but he what? He loves the sinner. But yet at the same time, that's not completely true. Bear with me. Psalm 5.5, God hates the workers of iniquity. Psalm 11.5, God hates the wicked. Proverbs 15.8, God hates the sacrifices of the wicked. Proverbs 59, God hates the ways of the wicked. Proverbs 15.26, God hates the thoughts of the wicked. Proverbs 6.18, God hates the feet that make haste to run to evil. Proverbs 6.16-19, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies and one who sows discord among brothers. Proverbs 8.13, 8, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. But then I know you have to be asking yourself the question like I was asking myself the question and like Rylan was asking me as I was explaining this to her. Because we read verses like John 3.16. We read verses like Romans 5.8, Right? What does it say? But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, what? Christ died for us. Or what about John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. So how is it that God hates sin, that God hates the sinner, but yet at the same time, God loves the sinner as well? How does that work? And in my finite mind, I don't completely understand it. I just know that it is true. But I also know one thing that can be hurting us in this as well is our view of who God actually is. I think all of us in this room, myself included in this, we have a very little G view of who God is. It's Christmas time, so I'll use this analogy. I think a lot of us in here, we sort of have a jolly old Saint Nick view of who God is. This sort of short, fat guy with red rosy cheeks and a circular nose that's sort of sitting in his chair and we get to go sit up on his lap and he gets to give us presents if we're good. That's what we think, right? And oh, does he really care about the sin in our lives? No, no, no. (laughs) It's okay. He's lenient with it, isn't it? That's what we think. Grace abounds, right? But then again, it says, by no means. Should we continue to sin to let grace abound? But yet that's the view a lot of times that we have of God. Because why? Because we want to be the kings and queens of our kingdom. We want to rule our own roost in our own world. So therefore, if we view God as a short, fat guy with red rosy cheeks and a circular nose, then it's okay if we sin. Then it's okay if we just sort of wallow in it and we sort of eat the cotton candy pleasures of this world and we just allow it to stick all over us and it's there one second and gone the next. What does it matter? Right? When you have a little G view of who God is, that's something that you're okay with. 
But when you begin to have a big G view of who God is, a holy God, a merciful God, a what? powerful God, a loving God, all of these things encompass perfectly in the Godhead, in the Trinity, then all of a sudden you begin to change your view of some things that are going on in your life, don't you? Now all of a sudden that sin doesn't look so enticing. Maybe next time we won't wallow in it for as long as we do sometimes, and myself included in this. But when we see this holy God, we know that one thing that he absolutely abhors is sin, but we also know at the same time he loves the sinner. And so it's hard for me to understand how that works together, but I just know that that's who God is. And so therefore, I need to take sin seriously. When it talks about in the Bible that it's against you alone, God, did I sin, I need to take that seriously. It's not against the man or the woman, it's against God, ultimately. But then as we continue on, for he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. It says what in verse 50? And his mercy is for those who fear him. So here's another attribute of God that we have, mercy. Thank God we have mercy, right? What is mercy? I've described this before, but I'm going to say it again because it's so closely related to grace, at least in the way that it sounds, that sometimes it can be difficult for us to differentiate. Mercy is God withholding something from us that we so rightly deserve. God withholding something from us that we so rightly deserve. Grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve. You see the slight differences that are there? And so because we are a sinful, fallen creature, we deserve the wrath of God. Every single one of us, myself included in that. We deserve ultimately to go to hell. That's what we deserve. But because of the mercy of God, he has withheld that wrath at least for a time so that we have the opportunity to put our trust and our faith in his son. So in this amazing thing here, God hates sin so much that he would put his only begotten son, and the reason I say begotten is because he's not created, he's begotten, he's from the same usia or substance as the father. He would put his only begotten son on the cross because he hated sin so much. But then on the other hand, he loved us so much that he would put his only begotten son on the cross for us as well. Now, is there anything in your life that you have hated so much or loved so much that you would put your only begotten son on the cross for or your only child or a child at all on the most horrific instrument of death ever created by man? Is there? Because I'm just sitting there thinking, my, my son who is seven years old, his curly hair and his hazel eyes, is there anything that I hate so much that I would want to rid the world of it that I would put him on the cross or anything that I love so much that I would want to put him on that cross? But when we think of it that way, that begins to help us to understand what? Who God actually is. And so it goes on and says, and in his mercy is for those who what? Those who fear him. 
from generation to generation. Now remember this fear that is here is not a fear of ah, it's a fear of ah. Now there are parts in scripture where it is a fear of ah, but this is a fear of awe, okay, of adoration, of amazement by who God is. But it says it goes from generation to generation. When I hear that and I think of that, I not only think of the fact that our sin not only affects our kids, but affects our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids. Well, now all of a sudden, on the other side of it, on the positive connotation of that, it also affects what? Our kids and our kids' kids and our kids' kids' kids. You know, every time I'm, I'm looking at and reading in the Scriptures, it reminds me of the fact that, that, that children are a blessing from the Lord. I don't think a lot of times we understand that or we realize that, and I'm, and I'm one of those. I was working out. I work out about 6 o'clock in the mornings uh, at the YMCA. If you ever want to come join me, come on, let's go. Um, but I was working out, and I got the same group of guys, about the same groups in there every single morning when I go. And they were talking, and there's a couple of them that have just recently, have ch- have just recently had children. And they were walking around. They're like, man, I hadn't been able to, because that's how every guy that works out talks, I guess. Um, like, man, I hadn't been able to work out for like two or three months. My newborn, gosh, I'm getting about two hours of sleep. It's terrible. Can't stand this. Got to get back in the gym. You know, then another one was talking about, man, I haven't been able to go hang out with my buddies because I got kids now, you know. And it just seems sort of this negative connotation. Now, have I been there with them before? Yeah, absolutely. You catch me on a night where I only get two hours of sleep, I'm there with them, right? But then when I go back to the scriptures, what I read about them being a, a blessing from the Lord. And so as I read this and it's saying from generation to generation, it made me think about the fact that what? That I need to be raising my children in what? The fear of the Lord. Are you raising your children in the fear of the Lord? And are you realizing that raising your children in that way is not only going to affect them, but it's going to affect their kids. It's going to affect their kids' kids. We started a Devo time with my family, and we typically do it at night, and we still do it right before they go to bed, but we started to do something at dinner time because we realized if they've got food in their mouth and we sort of have their attention with the food, they listen, seem to listen a little bit better. So we started doing it at dinner time, and there was a question that came up in this devotional, and it says, and the first question said, what do you love? And man, my son Bauer, he screamed out, first thing he said, sports. And I remember thinking to myself, under the table, I was going, yes. At least he didn't say Barbie dolls, right? <laughs> My daughter, she can love them all she wants, right? But I remember thinking to myself, that was sort of my first reaction. But then as the devotional goes on, it begins to twist that a little bit, doesn't it? And it begins to say what? Well, really, what you should love the most is God. And I remember thinking to myself at that moment in that time, I felt about this big, right? Here I was super excited that he had given that answer. But then when I get to the end of the lesson, I'm convicted by this children's devotional. And thinking to myself, what am I communicating to my kids? What am I passing on from generation to generation? Am I in awe of God or am I in awe of sports? What is that answer in my own life? 
And so as I'm sitting here uh, thinking about this, uh, I all of a sudden again get more convicted and sort of get hit right between the eyes when I read this statistic. This statistic was found on a friend of mine's Facebook page who is a pastor down in Florida. He says this, okay, listen carefully. It says there is a .0296% chance that your child will become a professional athlete. .0296% chance. There is a .0086% chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. So even less of a chance that your child will become a famous celebrity. And then he goes on to say, but there is a 100% certainty that your child will stand before Jesus. And he ends with this question, what are you teaching your children? Now, as we continued on in that devotional and we got to the end, Bauer said, oh, yeah, 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 God, as we got to the end. But I really began to think, does he truly believe that right now? Or is he just saying that because we're telling him to say that? And then another question that came up, am I truly teaching him that now? Or is that something that I just say as well because I know that's the right answer? I'm just telling him the A, the B, or the C, or the D on the test, but do I truly know how to even get to that answer or believe that answer? I mean, I'm spending a ton of money on sports. I'm spending a ton of time with him throwing the football, hitting a baseball, all of those things. And nothing in those things is wrong. But what am I communicating to him is my first love. And what's going to be passed down from what? Generation to generation. Is it the fear of the Lord? Or is it that sport? Or money? Or knowledge? Or whatever it may be in your own lives? And it says, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. And then verse 51 says, And he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So notice here the attribute that is talked about is strength. And we know all throughout the Scriptures we see and read about how strong God is. Let me just remind you about a few of them. Obviously you have Genesis 1, right? where it talks about him speaking the world into existence. Literally, he speaks the world into existence. I can't even speak and get that pew to move right there, but yet he can speak the entire world into existence. And then Psalm 18, 13 through 15, what does it say? The Lord also thundered in the heavens and the Most High uttered his voice. Hellstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare at your rebuke. O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Can you believe that? Isn't that amazing? The blast of the breath of his nostrils. He did all of these things. And then Job 38 Verses 4 through 6. Job's one of my favorite books of the Bible. Here Job is questioning God, and here's the response that God gives. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? And who laid its cornerstone?" 
Here Mary is understanding and has a great understanding of how almighty our God truly is. And the strength that says with his arm or of his arm. And it goes on to say that he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now, if you remember, pride is at the very core of all of our sinfulness. It's the same thing that Adam and Eve struggled with in the garden. I've mentioned this before, but it's the same thing that they struggled with, right? They ultimately, they wanted to be their own gods. They turned their back on God. They didn't need God anymore. They thought they knew what was best. And so therefore, they were going to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil so that they could have a knowledge that only God had so that ultimately they could be the kings and queens of their castle, right? And now we all, every single one of us in here, myself included, we have inherited that sin. So at the very core of our sin is our pride. We think we know what's best for us, right? God doesn't know what's best for us, even though he knit us in our mother's womb. We think we know what's best for us. And so therefore, what ends up happening in the midst of that is we let our pride get the best of us. And what does it go on to say? That he scattered the proud in what? The thoughts of their hearts. So that pride had made it to the heart. And you know that when anything ever makes it to your heart, that's the innermost of your being, all of a sudden it's going to begin to affect what? The way that you live your life. It's very difficult to get it from your mind and to have the knowledge of it and to get that knowledge to affect what? Your heart. But that's where their pride had gotten. It had gotten to their heart and it was affecting the way that they lived their lives. Now notice here it says he scattered them. That word therefore scattered is the exact same Greek word that they use in other texts for winnowing. Winnowing the wheat and the chaff of God separating those two things of where the the bad stuff sort of flies away in the wind, but the good grain falls to the floor. That's the same terminology that is used there for that. But it says that he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Now think about this with me just for a second. Another aspect of his strength that I had never thought about before, but was something that I learned this week. And I just want to read this to you because it's another one that, man, it is, it is tough to, uh, to think of, but yet so true at the same time. Is one that I read, I was reading this Attributes of God by A.W. Pink. And it says here, and I'm just going to read this quote, it says, God is going to display his mighty power upon the reprobate, not merely by incinerating them in Gehenna, but by supernaturally preserving their bodies as well as souls amid the eternal burnings of the lake of fire. Well, may all tremble before such a God. Have you ever thought of that before? That God does not completely annihilate the person who continually rejects him. Instead, he does what? He keeps them alive. He keeps them alive to continue to suffer in what? The lake of fire. That is a powerful, holy God. That is nothing like the little G God that I have in my mind a lot of times. 
But you see, God's mercy is there for those of us for a time. But then sooner or later, that mercy will be removed. And then comes wrath. And then comes justice. And then comes all these other attributes that God is. But he's able to encompass all of these things perfectly in the Godhead, in the Trinity. And I can't completely understand how the love and justice and wrath and mercy and all that fits together. I just know that it does. But at the same time, when I continue to try to think of him, it puts me in what? In awe, in fear of who he is. That God that I read within the scriptures is what? Magnificat. And the greatest gift we can ever receive is not a Nintendo NES system, but it is a relationship with his only begotten son. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you so much for today, God. I thank you so much for the great reminder in your scriptures, the great reminder in, God, your holy word. And I thank you for the praise that Mary gave you when she realized who she was in light of a holy, almighty, merciful, powerful, uh, sin-free God, loving, just God. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to be reminded of who you are so we don't put you in a little G category, but we give you a big G because you are an amazing and awesome God. And I pray, Lord, that we would always continue to seek you, to love you, to worship you in our lives, and that we would realize that we are nothing without your strong arm, without your mighty hand, without your finger, without your breath sustaining us and keeping us alive. And we pray this in your Son's precious and holy name. Amen.